the, the, the story that stuck out to me the most was it was like a scene straight out of the godfather was how your brother-in-law was executed are you okay to take the viewers down that path first please anthony definitely yeah yeah, it's a big part of my story. I mean, it changed my life, actually. Not at that time, many years later, actually, it changed my life. Yeah, you know, um, my brother-in-law, Frankie, his nickname was Kiki. He was a, he was a tough kid. You know, he was from the neighborhood. He, his parents come from, came from Italy. Uh, he was, a, he was a, an armored truck robber. He had a partner named Peter Sicara, who was also another dangerous kid. And, uh, you know, they were mobbed up. Uh, they did some time for armored truck robberies. Um, they committed a few homicides together. And they were two dangerous kids. And um, my sister started dating him. And uh, at that time, when she started dating him, uh, Danny Marino, who was a captain in the Gambino family, came to see us and told me, advised me that his to have my sister not socialize with him because he's he's a bad kid and tell my sister to stay away from him. So I told my mother and my sister what Danny said, but my sister, she didn't want to hear it. And she continued dating him. And eventually they got married. He introduced her to drugs. Um, they started doing some drugs together. And like I said, he was a dangerous kid. Um, so then at one point, um, I was, my sister became pregnant and um, they had a baby. I was actually in treatment at the time because I, I had a little problem with, with, a, I had a, uh, with cocaine and I was addressing my issues. I was in a treatment center and um, my mother, my sister had a baby shower. And the next morning I called up my wife who lived upstairs because we lived upstairs from my mom. My mother lived on the first floor and I was on the second floor. I called up my wife to see Alice to see how the party went. And she says to me, you don't know what that son of a bitch did uh, he, I, I heard screaming last night and I ran downstairs. He was choking your mother. She was on the floor. And I said, what do you mean he was choking my mother? And um, she says that he ran up a bar tab for like seven or $800 after my mother had already paid for the party. And when the owner gave my mother the bar tab, my mother said, what is this for? And she, he said, your son-in-law was uh, buying everybody drinks and he told me to give you the check. So when my mother got home, he confronted her and he attacked my mother. And my wife had to jump on him. She scratched his face in a whole big scene. And then he ran out of the house. So I was, like I said, I was in treatment. So when I got out of treatment, um, when I got out of treatment, I went right to see my father's partner, Tony Lee, who was a made member of the Gambino family. He was my father's partner because my father was in prison. And I went to see him and I told him, you know, this Frankie beat my mother up. And he says to me, I know. Just like that, he went, I know. I said, what do you mean, you know? I said, what, what do you mean, you know? What are we, you know, what, what are we going to do here? And he said, we're going to kill him. And, you know, and that was fine, because that's the life that we lived. And I said, all right, you know, so what are we going to do? He said, well, you're going to have to go to visit your father and get permission from your father. He has to okay it, because we're going to put it on record, because, you know, Dominic's going to do it. He wanted Dominic to get credit for it, because Dominic was proposed, and I was proposed. It's all... It's funny how in the mob is protocols to commit a murder. I mean, uh, uh, because it's a, it's a sanctioned thing. It's work. It's it's part of the of what you do. So you have to get permission. You have to put it on record. It has to go to the boss, and the boss eventually has to okay it. Because if they don't okay it, and you do it anyway, then you know your 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 life on the line. Because you know homicides bring heat, and it's a whole big procedure. 
So the first step was I had to go visit my father. So I went to visit my father and I told him what happened. And he says to me, what does he think, I'm dead? <laughs> so I said, no, he don't care. You know, he's a bad kid. He, he just don't care. You know, uh, I don't know what he thinks. So I told my father what the plan was and he said, do it. And he okayed it. So I went back to New York and I told Tony Lee, my father okayed it. And at that point, my father, Tony Lee sent for Jeannie Gotti, who was a captain at the time of, of the Gambino family. And we told Jeannie what happened. And uh, Jeannie said, okay, I'll go tell my brother. And he went to John, who was the boss, John Gotti. And the next day or a day later, Jeannie came back and he told us uh, his brother okayed it. And his brother, you know, was very close with him. John was very close to us. You know, we have a different relationship with him. We knew him when he was a kid. He really loved my mother and uh, and, he, and he loved my father, of course. And so, uh, so he okayed it. And then we put a, put a plan together. And uh, you want me to explain the plan? Yeah, <laughs> on this channel, we like to get as much detail as possible. Some of our guests, they say, I'm going to cut a long story short. And I'm like, no, uh, all right, make well, it long, I'll, I'll, make it long. Yeah, so, so, uh, you know, like I said, he was a dangerous kid. It couldn't have been like, we couldn't just roll up on him on a street corner and gun him down in the street. Like you see on TV, you know, he was a dangerous kid. He really had to be done. Um, we had to really reel him in and make him feel comfortable because, uh, you know, he was a killer, you know, he was dangerous. I mean, um, and so, uh, we, uh, we put a plan in place where he was a thief. We knew he was a, he was an armored truck robber. Like I said, he was an armed robber. That was just basically his thing. He was a thief. Uh, so we, uh, we planned, um, we told him, if, we told him that Tony Lee knew of a safe house of drug money in South Ozone Park. We don't know how much money was in there, but we know that it's where the drug, de drug dealers keep their money. So uh, we, we told him that, and then um, we told him Tony wanted to explain it to him. And then we sent for this guy, Tommy, who had a boat, and, they were, and then they, after the murder, they were gonna take his body out on a boat and dispose of him in the, in the Atlantic Ocean. So what happened was we told him about this score that we had a safe house that had money and uh, Tony Lee wanted to speak to him. So I called him up the day before and I said, listen, Tony Lee wants to meet you tomorrow morning at Cafe Liberty. He wants to tell you what's going on with that situation I told you about. He says, all right. So that morning I, um, I picked him up. You know, it's funny, you know, when I talk about it because actually it didn't even phase me back then, you know, like I, I, I picked him up and he came out of the house and he had shorts on and a t-shirt and uh, he got in my car, you know, we laughed, he kissed me on the cheek, hello, and you know, and I'm sitting there with him and I'm like, I'm driving this guy to his death, like, you know, like it was like the sun was out, it was a hot June day out, you know, he had shorts on and a t-shirt and uh, I drove him to Cafe Liberty and when I pulled up, um, Tony Lee's brother, who was another soldier in the Gabino family, Mikey Gal, he was sitting outside waiting for us. And we got out of the car and I walked across the street and Mikey got up off the chair and he came over and he hugged Frankie and he kissed him. Hello, oh, I'm happy to see you. Another guy knew he was gonna die. And, you know, I wasn't nervous up to that point. I was pretty calm up to that point because my, my part in it was really important because I had to bring him there. So I had to stay like really calm and I couldn't like let my hand be known because if he had any kind of inkling, you know, like anything could have happened. So. So my job getting him there was to keep him calm and, you know, keep him, you know, so, 
So I got him there and I didn't feel anything until I walked in the door and he was in front of me and he walked in and Mikey was on the outside and the door locked from the outside and the door closed and I heard Mikey lock the door. He didn't hear the door lock, but I did. And when I heard the door lock, I got a little nervous at that point. You know, I got a little nervous. And um, when I walked in, there was three people at the bar. There was a counter. It was uh, this guy, Freddie, who later on became a soldier in the Gambino family. This guy, Dominic Pizzoni, Skinny Dom, who's now a captain in the Gambino family, and Tony Lee. Were at the, and they had a, a dish with bagels on it and coffee, and they were, having, they were eating bagels. And we walked in. You know, they all saw Frankie. They hugged him. They kissed him. Hello, glad to see you, this and that, blah, blah, blah. You want a bagel? And he said, no. And uh, Tony says, all right, come, come in the back. I want to show you my garden. Because in the back of the club, Tony Lee had a big vegetable garden. He had a green thumb, Tony Lee. And he had a, and so we went back there, you know, we went back there. He took a, it was like a scene in a movie, really. He took a paper bag and he walked out into the back and he was picking tomatoes and putting them in the paper bag and just talking to Frankie about, how, you know, just bullshitting to Frankie. Not about anything important, just regular chit chat. And he was put a couple of tomatoes in the paper bag, and he goes, "Yeah, bring these home, you know, for you know, for you and Francine, who was my sister." And he handed Frankie the bag. As we walked out of the the garden, we got back into the back of the club, and as we were walking, Tony Lee grabbed Frankie by the hand and said, "I want to talk to you." And I just kept on walking, and. Frankie stopped and I walked out to the front. And when I walked out to the front, I looked at Dominic and I gave Dominic the nod and Dominic reached underneath the countertop and he took out a revolver and he put it behind his back and he walked into the back. And then I just heard pop, 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 pop. I just heard a couple of shots. And then I looked and I saw Frankie laying on the floor and Dominic came out and he said, and he looked at me and he goes, this fucking guy don't want to die. And he put more bullets in the gun and he went back in. And then as I was looking, I saw Dominic just pop, pop, shot him a couple of more times. And um, then he came out and I worked in, and my father had a big number office, like a lottery office. It was illegal, like a bookmaking type thing, but it was numbers. And I, and I, I worked in the office during the day and we walked out and um, Tony says to me, just to go to work, make out nothing happened, go to work and then I'll come see you tonight. And I left, I went to do my regular routine and uh, they took his body and they put it in a, in a sleeping bag, which I had bought the day before. And they put him in the trunk of Dominic's car. So I went to work that day. And then a couple hours later, my sister called me to tell me Frankie never came home. Where is he? I said, I don't know. I dropped him off on the corner. He made a phone call and I don't know where the hell he is. So I had to go by our house and I went by our house that night and his parents were there and I actually, took his father to go, I mean, this is how insane the mob is, right? The, I actually took his father that night to go look for him, knowing that he was in the trunk of the car. So I took her, I took him, and then the next day, um, I wasn't on the boat, but Tony Lee, you know, I knew what I, the next day they took him on this guy Tommy's boat, and they took him out into the Atlantic Ocean, and they wrapped him up, and Tony Lee punctured his lungs and cut open his stomach because they didn't want him to float up to the top, and they threw him in the ocean and he's never been found. He hasn't been found. I mean, they never found his body. And, uh, and then that was in, uh, that was in 88. And then in 05, I got indicted for the murder. All right, Anthony, we've got a few questions on this story then, because it is one of the most fascinating stories that's ever been told on this channel. 
I'm interested in getting a bit more detail. So when you're leading him to his death, how fine-tuned do you have to be into his senses and how how fine-tuned do you have to be to detect any slight little change in, in his attitude to what's going on? Well, first of all, when I got in the car, I made sure he had no weapons on him, and he didn't. And I, how I knew that is because of the way he was dressed. He had a, just a little white T-shirt on with shorts on, shoes, no socks. So I knew he had no weapons on him. So that that right away was was you know was good. Um, yeah, I had to be fine too because I, I mean I had to bring him there no matter what. I couldn't like say. If I even if I picked up on something, I would have had to get him there and then had to some way let them know that something's up. But my I, as long as I felt, as long as I stood calm and um and and I just act naturally, everything would go smooth. And uh and I could tell by his expression, he he underestimated me. That's what it was. And I knew that. I knew he underestimated, I knew he felt that I wasn't maybe. And then I'm not saying this, I'm not proud of it. I'm just saying I think he didn't think I was capable of that because he thought he was a tough kid guy and everything. So I think he sort of underestimated me. So it made my job a little easier. If that makes sense. And uh, so I know as long as I stood calm and and just carried on a normal conversation with him, you know, I had him, and 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 that's what happened. And I had him, and I brought him there, and you know, and and uh, I walked him in. Bruno. Yeah, that was a very good question, Sean. I, I have a second part to that. So he had to know what he did, you know what I mean, prior. So by him being hypersensitive and you kind of giving him the, uh, you know, the laid back attitude, going on the boat, doing whatever you're doing, that had to make him feel a little more calm. But in your opinion, Anthony, did he, he had to know what was going on at some point. And, you know, did he, he didn't give any type of, you know, inclination that, you know, he knew he was in some kind of trouble for what he did? Well, I don't think this is, what happened was my mother never told my father. My mother was scared of him. This is what happened. So there was more to the story than him just beating up my mother. Prior to him actually laying hands on my mother, he was shaking her down for money. He was taking her to the bank. There was other incidents that happened. He, he um, So, and she was in fear of him. And she was in fear of him hurting us, me or my brother. So like after the incident happened and I found out, I, I, my mother, I could see she was a nervous wreck. And at one point I told my mother, Ma, you know, what's wrong with this Frankie? And she went, stay away from him. He's crazy. He'll hurt you. Just forget it. So she was in fear. So she never told my father. My, I think he just felt that we didn't say anything to anybody. I think he thought we were scared of him. He knew he, he he didn't think my father knew because when he first started dating my my sister, his partner, Peter Sakara, told him, listen, this is Fat Andy's daughter. You need, you know, you better think about twice dating this girl. But that's what he did. He also dated before my sister, Sonny Francis's daughter. He dated Michael's sister before this incident. That and and you know, and he dated Danny Marino's niece before this incident. So his pattern was to date wise guys, daughters or relatives, because I guess he felt that was a shell for him. So I think he underestimated me. I think he never realized my father knew because of the, the fear my mother lived in, because I'm telling you, he he showed no inkling of what I where I was taken. 
He was laughing the way he was dressed. He had no weapons on him. And he walked in there with a smile on his face. So I don't, I think he just underestimated the whole situation and really believed that he had my mother wrapped up. And he knew Alice told me, but I don't think he thought I would take it any further. Right. So I'm here in London with David Courtney, oh, London yeah, OG. You. Whereabouts were you from originally in London? I'm a South London boy. I'm um, Peckham, Campbell Green, Bermondsey. Yeah. yeah. They say in America, they call it the Black Quarter because they <laughs> separate South London by a river. North London, East London and West London are all on that side of Thames. Yeah. We got all the, we got Brixton, New Cross, Peckham. Yeah. Yeah. So, Bandit country. <laughs> so you were born into the bandit lifestyle. I'm afraid you? so. Yeah. And how old were you when you like started thinking, this is the way I want to go? Um. Personally, I don't think that you you can start thinking that. I think okay. you're actually born that way. Right. Yeah, you're born naughty. Mm. Yeah. Or you're not. Or you're, if you're a girl, you're born that you like cock. And it doesn't matter if you married Brad Pitt, you'd still shake the chauffeur. You can't help it. You're just that way. And and being born naughty is, is pretty, pretty much the same as that. So yeah, I was born that way. I found it quite natural as um natural leader material. Yeah. yeah. I found that the you could still be a, a criminal and laugh a lot because mm -hmm. laughing and the sense of humour was my was my big thing. Yeah. And. Um, I didn't have to walk around like that till Dave mm -hmm. looking angry and um, pissed off. You yeah. know, it, it helped keeping everything light-hearted and... Yeah. What about in school? Did this start to show then? Very much so, yeah. I, I was getting on with all the big kids. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I had a little bit of bottle and I was out robbing cars and factories and uh, doing... You know, I was up for everything to yeah. earn some money. Yeah. And... At 13 and 14, I was most probably earning more than my dad. You know, right. when I was out with the kids earning money. So at school, I never had no trouble because mm -hmm. I ran with the big kids at night. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And how was that money being earned? Through crime, petty crime at the time. Yeah. Petty crime, yeah. So what were the first crimes that you did then? Well, it was nicking cars and, and, and um, rubbing factories and shops. And yeah. No, anything that they said, you know, like my mum and dad were scout leaders, mm -hmm. yeah, covered scout leaders. So I used to like pretend to, I had a sponsored swim, I'd write out all the forms. <laughs> or, we're collecting for the bottle packet in the tin, we're collecting food for the Biafra, <laughs> you know what I mean? And go around there one day and get 50 barrels of food, you know. Yeah. I, like, we were all doing all different things, all different things. I was a late starter with the fighting thing. I didn't realise mm -hmm. I was gifted at that until I was much older. What made you realise that? Um, having to actually do it. Yeah. You know, like, like getting coming unstuck one day where there was no way out of it. My jokes weren't helping. I didn't <laughs> have a lot of big friends around me and I had to go and do something. Yeah. And I think it was the fear of getting hurt, hurt. Right. That made me pull something out of the bag that, wow, I didn't actually know I could do that. Yeah. And someone threatened you then? Yeah, it was it was a punch up that I was in the in the company of people that mm. this fellow with a big builder's belt on with hammers in it and screwdriver looked look the scariest fucking thing in the world. Do you know what I mean? Big muscles and that. Yeah, I was a kid. I think I was fifteen, and he banged out to the men that I was with, mm. and the turn like, turned on me, and I thought, well, I'm just going to get knocked out, smashed a bit, stabbed it with the hammer, or 
I've got to at least try. Yeah. And I was very good at it. So, <laughs> well, oh, wow. Yeah, that's quite cool. Did it give you a feeling like you enjoyed it? Um, The most Neanderthal feeling in the world is knocking at another man. That's quite natural for anyone to yeah. actually be standing over someone in a boxing mm -hmm. ring while you've knocked him unconscious. Yeah. And having 10,000 people going, die, mate. Right, <laughs> hear me, that is sexual. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. And it is the most natural thing in the world. Even gorillas today, they go, <laughs> Yeah? You know, it's... Of course you felt good winning, yeah. Yeah, because I had a mate growing up called Wildman, big guy, and he was just getting... I find that very surprising that you had a mate, but Karen... <laughs> <laughs> When you give drugs away for free, you attract a lot of mates. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he, he just had a natural... Uh, flair for it. Yeah, flair for it, that's it, yeah. yeah. yeah I recognise that in you. And, yeah. I, and I think yeah. once you've lost a couple of fights, yeah, and you do actually realise that you can lose a couple of fights and get hurt, but you do actually get better mm -hmm. two months down the line, and it doesn't matter and you're all okay, that makes you not frightened of getting hurt. Yeah. And that is... Mm -hmm. A really big thing in in the in the finance world. Yeah. Once you don't mind getting hurt yourself. Yeah. Um, it makes you an, a prolific mm -hmm. weapon. Yeah. Yeah. So you have to lose a couple to realise getting knocked out is no big thing. You just a little bit of a sore jaw for the next two or three weeks. Yeah. Or a couple of days, and then you're away again. You know, I've seen yeah. people break their eye socket and all that, and then eight weeks time, mm. it's all mended and they're cracking on with it. But once that's happened to you a couple mm. of times. You ain't frightened of getting hurt. That makes you a yeah. much better fighting man. And any boxer will tell you that. Yeah. You learn fuck all from winning a boxing match. <laughs> yeah, someone's standing in a corner and you're going, bah, 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 yeah. bah, bah. you don't learn nothing from that. If you're trapped in a corner and getting pinged out, you get mm. out of there going, I will never get trapped like that again. Yeah. Getting losing is is educational, yeah. And it makes you more confident in life as well in karate. Of course. Doing lineups. I remember the first lineup, you know, all the black belts are waiting. You've got to fight them for like 30 seconds each. Shitting it the first time, broken uh, ribs, cracked ribs, broken fingers, but you lose that fear then of getting hit. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah you got to get it. So what took it then to the gun level with you? Um, As you got older, when the, the big kids that you're hanging around with are carrying firearms, yeah, then... You know, you progress with that, yeah? You get nicer mm -hmm. cars, nicer clothes, nicer weapons, nicer yeah. women, bigger bank balances, mm -hmm. you know, in, in depending on what walk of life you're in, mm -hmm. everything should go up a level every now and then. So if you're yeah. using a stick to hit someone on the head as a kid and you're using a knife later on as a, as a teenager, if you're going to carry on in that way of life, as, as you progress, you, you turn to firearms. Would you say you was addicted to that lifestyle? No, 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 no. It, it's not the lifestyle. It's um, being a criminal is is just a job. Yeah, yeah. It's just a job. It's like bricklayers don't come home with a trowel and build brick walls in the front room all day long. And I don't run around the kitchen with a gun going, "Make me a sandwich." <laughs> yeah, it's tools of the trade, on site when you're at work, and when you come home, you're just a bloke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? And and crime is the same as going. Brick lane, you know, it's a lazy man's way of going to work. You don't have to do eight hours a day for... No taxes. Yeah, yeah of course. Yeah, yeah. And it, it, it force feeds you into a way of life of, um, 
you can spend more, you can go out more, because you don't have to get up for work in the morning, you don't have to save up, because when you run out of money, you go out and get another load. <laughs> yeah? And and it's different. You've got a different way of life. So, yeah. Um, you only, you only, people that are naturally good at that, do the things like, don't grass you up, don't run away and leave mm. you when you're in trouble, um, stay loyal to their friends people that just want that way of life but they're not born into it yeah they pretend to be they're the ones that they go bodybuilding they try and look like gangsters they do it all the time thanks the racers yeah 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 Yeah. and um when it when when the shit is a fan that's when you can tell how good a person you are in anything especially the gangster world Mm -hmm. yeah the criminal world when the shit is a fan it's them the ones that go or run away when they've seen him get stabbed him get stabbed and him get stabbed and then they look at you yeah Yeah. they would be the one who ran away wouldn't enter someone like real's head Mm -hmm. to go I'll grass him up or I'll run away and leave you or yeah you get what I mean so how easy was it for you to get a guns back then I can see it (laughs) it's very very easy yeah it's it's, it's, uh, no felonies in here it's a lot easier now yeah. It was quite easy then, depending on what walk of life you're in. Right. Yeah. I, what, I, what, I what, say what years are we talking when you were first getting into the gun scene? Um, late 80s, early 90s. Okay. You know, when, when the rave scene first kicked in. And okay. All of a sudden, people are selling ease. Yeah. And whatever doorman was running the club of... Uh, was running the door of a... Of, of a, of a 15,000 strong rave you know mm-hmm. you was going home with a couple of hundred grand yeah well that's up to your level of violence because that's worth actually robbing you for yeah coming doing a takeover bid for or mm-hmm. you know having a little gunfight over who's got the right to sell that in there that's a lot a lot of money we never no one had ever seen that before you're used to 80 pound a night as a doorman yeah now you've got you've got drug dealers giving you Two grand to let them sell the stuff in there tonight, mm-hmm. and you've got ten of them in there doing that. Yeah, and that's worth fighting for. And if the people that's going to be coming to mm-hmm. take over are carrying guns, I'm afraid my knuckle duster is no good anymore. I have to have firearms, and I have to have people around me that are prepared to use them, not show it or just getting hard on carrying it. You have to be. It's an arms race. Yeah, 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 for real, yeah. So, what attracted you to going into the rave scene? Um. I went to America with Richard Branson and I saw him when it was all acid. Yeah. yeah. What year was that? 89? Oh, early. No, no, it was earlier than that. Really? And I saw him buying, I saw him buying water. Yeah, the water and sales. That, what is what freaked me out. If anyone <laughs> in my, when I was a young man, ever went into a pub and went, Three Ribenas, a Lucasade, four <laughs> bottles of water, and an orange juice, it'd get fucking beat up. Yeah? It would get beat up. You had light and bitters, double diamonds, light, whatever. But it'd get beat up. And I saw them buying fucking water mm. and buying two bottles of water for $2 each and drinking one and tipping the other one on their head. And I'm like, <laughs> is this for fucking real? Right, the toilet ain't even got toilet paper. You know, ain't an ashtray in the whole club. It's a railway arch. Yeah. And they're buying fucking water <laughs> off you because they've all had this pill. Yeah. Fuck, I couldn't wait to come home. I bought fucking three quarters of a ton of empty heavy hand bottles. Yeah. Filled them up with water. Got to my railway arch yeah, yeah. at John Ruskin Street. Put them all the water in the fridge and everyone that wants a, a bottle of water, when you have a bottle of water, they take the top off for you. 
and throw it in a bin. Otherwise, the dance floor would be smothered in bottle tops. Mm -hmm. right? So they didn't know it was just ordinary walk out the tap, and I'm like going fucking three quid for me, three quid for me, like all day long, every day. And because it was illegal, you stayed up until six. All the clubs shut half two, three o'clock. Yeah. They've just made me, I can sell water now till six in the fucking morning. <laughs> it comes out of the tap. It comes out of the fucking tap. Right, and they say there's not a God, yeah? And you're not even breaking the law. No, it's mental. And the only people you've got to look out for or worry about are in there going, Assy! <laughs> I was like, wow. Wow, stop it. So how did you have it structured then? Did you like find a venue, throw parties, do the water, well, I, drugs I, I, and money for the house? I had a... Um, a Maybe one of the biggest teams of doormen in the country okay. at the time. Right. Yeah. Um, there is natural leaders and there is natural soldiers, and yeah. each one is 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 as equally important to the other one. Mm -hmm. Good soldier needs a good leader. Good leader. The problem yeah. comes when soldier gets in charge, or a leader has to be led by someone ain't as good as him. Yeah, that's when it all falls to bits. But yeah. I found my little vocation. I had seven eight hundred. Big bodybuilding, flat nosed skinheads oh, yeah, working true, for me. It? Yeah. And I had all the clubs. I had the, had all the, the string clubs. fellows, the hippodromes, wow. the Ministry of Sounds. That's the, a lot of power. It, yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, I was looking at it. I was earning £15 a man per night. Yeah. And on the weekend, I had 800 working. You know, during the yeah. week, I had 400 working. But at the weekend, I was earning 800 15 quid. That adds up, doesn't it? Yeah, without the money, just on the dormant thing. Yeah. And if anyone wants to go and get their neighbour beat up or their daughter's boyfriend beat up for mm -hmm. it her or the car repossessed or squatters thrown out, yeah. they really don't know who to ask. Yeah. But every Friday night, there's a lot of dormant over there and they'd fucking know. So I became a massive big job centre <laughs> for people that wanted their neighbour to be disappeared. Can you get the squatters out of my house? Can you repossess a car? And I had 800 flat note pieces all waiting to. Yeah. Have you got any other work for me, Dave, apart from Friday and Saturday night? You had so, your own army, basically. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly what it was, yeah. So did you try ecstasy? Yeah, fucking hell, did I? <laughs> I? Did I try ecstasy? Yes. I turned into the best fucking dancing fighter anyone had dancing ever seen. Fighter. I'm fucking telling you. It's not that I was the best fighter in the, or dancer in the world, but I thought I was. I was the first bloke to moonwalk forward. <laughs> yeah, you know. So how long was you run in that scene and what happened next? Oh, wow. Uh, what happened next is it, it made me infamous. Okay. I bought quite a lot of clubs. Yeah. All the doorman worked for me. I then ended up doing the cratering funeral. Wow. Um, I actually thought it was going to be the biggest smart move I've ever done in my life by showing the rest of the world my security men. Yeah. And after that, I was going to become, was going to become a millionaire mm -hmm. with security jobs. What it actually done is it brought Dave Courtney to the attention of mm. the police and the polit politicians. Yeah. And it was their very first visual proof of organised crime. One criminal mm -hmm. has arranged all of these other criminals yeah. that normally are shooting each other, but on this one day, mm -hmm. he's in charge and got them all coming down here doing the security thing, and criminals are supposed to have their collar up in the shadows, no pictures, no comment. 
and then we all were for so eight hours. It was a surveillance watch. Yeah, they just went, what the yeah. fuck is that? Get rid of Dave Courtney and his little band of men. So the very next day, uh, I'm now being called a celebrity gangster. What the fuck that is, mm. I really do not know, yeah? Contradictory terms. It's like saying police intelligence, yeah? The two words don't go. Yeah. You know what I mean? They just don't go. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad you got that. It's and, like Pablo uh, Escobar was always low-key. Yeah, yeah, cool. Yeah. But now I'm now doing not get a load of me. Yeah. So I just really got it wrong. Cray Tree Connection destroyed me. So I went to every club I had a dormant and went, look, sat Dave Courtney in his dormant, otherwise you won't have a license for a fucking television, you dickhead. So boom, and, and, and the magazines that I was working for, they went to the editor and going, you can't glamorise crime, sack him. Yeah. Uh, the television company that I was working for, they went, we're not having him on telly, you know, sack him. And it's yeah. the police just destroyed my life. It just shut me down. Yeah. What was no, what was your relationship with the craze? Then just going, just jumping back a bit. You mentioned the craze um, funeral. Well, I was running all the doors. Yeah. They were the craze twins. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they asked to come and see me, mm -hmm. for me to come and see them. Mm -hmm. And I, I was um, living with the Jamaican lady who was a rapper. She had an identical twin sister, and they wrote a record about the two Cray twins themselves. Yeah. And the record was called "They Took the Rap." And they were rappers. <laughs> And so they said, you know, I said, I made the record. And they went, if you're going to make a lot of money from that record, boy, yeah. you better come and see me. I've heard you're running things out there. You better come and see me. So I'm like, fucking hell. <laughs> so I then go to see Ronnie and, uh, and Broadmoor and Reggie. And Broadmoor, is that like the mental prison? Yeah, it's a mental prison. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And um, Charlie became my friend, a lot of close, close friends. Mm -hmm. And so I then became their legs and arms for the last 20 years I was in prison. Right. So what kind of stuff did they ask you to do then? Everything, you know, everything mm. that you would imagine the creator was asking me to do, I did whatever they would have asked me to. Yeah. At the time, being a young, easily impressed mm -hmm. fella, yeah, mm -hmm. I went yes, yes, yes to all the things they asked me to. So, right. you know, everything that you can imagine them asking me to, I, I would do. Mm -hmm. I, I then became aware that... Um, that they were a spent force mm. living on reputation. Yeah. And the real characters were nowhere near what you thought of in the myth. They were out the limelight. And 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 the actual calibre of person wasn't what you wanted it to be. Nothing or no one is as big as a myth. Yeah, mm -hmm. not John Wayne, not Al Capone, not Dave Courtney, not Ronnie Craig. No one is as big as a myth. Yeah. yeah. And uh but I was in it, I was getting on great because they were associates now of mine. So mm -hmm. it was opening an awful lot of doors until the end. And then at the end of it, it, it became the thing that shut all the doors. Yeah. You know what I mean? They, yeah. they weren't running around showing off that they were both actual gays or mm -hmm. they were both completely skint. Most of what they said was a lie. It was just a romantic myth. The only reason they had stayed mythical characters is because mm -hmm. they'd been locked up for so long. Had they been let out, people would have met them and known them and gone, oh, they're yeah. not that, you know. Yeah, still now in London, the talks about them and tours and stuff, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, of course, yeah, 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 yeah. But, you know, great. And and, and they made it um, acceptable for mm -hmm. people like myself to earn money out of your criminal past. Yeah. 
But once I'd gone all over the telly and the newspapers as a celebrity gangster, <laughs> huh, I needed to do something very public to prove that I'm not. Yeah. I couldn't do fuck all. I couldn't mm. jump out of my car and go bang to the geezer in the car behind because everyone in England was going, that's Dave Courtney, I know him, I see him on the telly. I was well, fucked, I, I was fucked. Yeah. Yeah. And I was a debt collector. I could no longer kick a door down, run in, frame about and get the money. Because yeah. he can go, it was Dave Courtney, I know him. <laughs> seen him on the telly. So I'll get nicked and go to prison, I'm fucked. So I quickly needed to, just as publicly as the creator in general, do something that took me out of the limelight. So I wrote that book, mm. Stop the Ride, I Want to Get Off. Dave's got nine books out now, haven't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, yeah. You've, you've described all this time so far. But have you got to this point in your life without doing any prison time? No, I've done a few, I've done a few prison, but I've done more, all of my, not all, I've done some little sentences. Yeah. But I'm famous for actually getting not guilty. I've had 21 not guilty. Teflon Don style. I defend myself, right? I couldn't get my head around paying, some, yeah, <laughs> paying someone 150 grand yeah. to stick up for me in court when I can argue better for myself. Yeah. And if he don't argue well enough for me, I go to prison. Right. I'm not doing that. I'll argue that for me, out. thank you. That worked Every out time, yeah. Every time. Yeah. So what was the first time you had to do that? What were you charged with? Oh, I don't know. But I just I would always sit there and defend me. I can't uh, stupid things, you know, yeah. calf, every, anything, anything. I've yeah. been done for five million pounds worth of cocaine importation, murder, <sighs> attempted murder, grievous bodily harm, uh, assault, um, a million different things. A million different. So what, things. what was the murder beef then? There's no beef to me. I'm all right. <laughs> <laughs> and you beat that one. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. So have you got any stories from your time inside? God, I could, listen, listen, I could, I could sit here and rattle off stories for you, my friend. Yeah. You're going to have to narrow that down because every single day of my life... You were probably running it inside, I imagine. Was, I'm not me. I'm not silly enough to believe for one second yeah. I am scary. The scary thing about me is my telephone. That's all. <laughs> Yeah, I don't care what trouble I'm in, what, what what part of the country, what part yeah. of the world. If you let me get to my phone, yeah, I will fuck you, mate. You've got your arm here right there. Huh? Yeah. It's not yeah. me and then what I'm a sixty year old fat bloke. Yeah, but if you <laughs> let me get to that, I'll fuck you. Whether you yeah. be Russian, Indian, Pakistani, Polish, mm -hmm. Albanian, yeah. Have you bumped any heads with the horror mafias? Of course I have, yeah, yeah. 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 I bumped heads enough to know that if I fell out with them, I'm going to come second. So they're all now my friends, every single one of them. <laughs> yeah, you know, I have a completely different level of crime and violence mm. than, than people in England. I'm yep. afraid um, human life is, is held at different importance mm -hmm. in different countries of the world. Yeah. yeah. In England, it's held as maximum importance. But in Kosovo or Moscow or Kingston, mm. Jamaica or Bosnia, Human life or Afghanistan means that. Yeah, yeah. Where, where I was at in Arizona prison, they killed for $50 worth of heroin. Where I? Yeah. So I saw you got run off the road or something. Is there a story behind that? There is a story behind that. I, um, I've paid policemen all my life, and a certain policeman that I'd paid for for 15, 20 years mm -hmm. actually got caught. He actually got caught with yeah. me. And um, they filmed him, filmed me and him up the top of the road talking. And when they actually arrested us, he went, no, I'm, Dave's not paying me. I'm paying him. And I was like, really? <laughs> but but I, I bugged myself. Yeah. 
I'd bugged myself, so yeah. I'd take the whole conversation. <laughs> so when he actually said that, that I then went, okay, well, there's a tape. So they can either now, this is their decision, yeah. put him in prison and let me come out the hero. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let me come out the hero, write a couple of books about it. All of the people that had arrested, there's going to be fucking uh, criminal compensation paid, mm -hmm. you know, look, look, look bad. Or pretend that they believe him. Call me a glass for eight months and hope that someone shoots me before it gets to court. Wow. So that's exactly what they did. But my yeah. biggest day is I went to court. Mm -hmm. I got not guilty at the Old Bailey and my and the couple went to prison. <laughs> I still bang one off over that. Oh, sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> but if I, if I ever can't get an eye on, I, don't, I think of that. I think of the women. <laughs> I, my biggest day. Hear me. I went to court dressed as a court jester. I saw that. The jester um, picture, yeah. <laughs> had some photos in, but it's on television. I went into court dressed as a court jester <laughs> and pinged the copper out. Knocked him spark out in court. <laughs> Uh, on television. Stop it, I'm getting a little semi-hard on. Wait, wait, wait. Wait, wait, it's going. Yeah, so... So for people watching this who don't know who Joe Gambino is, um, how did he rise up? How did he be, get into power? Well, Tommy Gambino's, it's a cousin, and Tommy Gambino was uh, also in prison with me. He just passed away in actual causes. And again, Tommy Gambino was another guy, very wealthy, a very a businessman, a gentleman, uh, didn't talk didn't look for trouble just uh, did his time and very well respected as, as you know these guys aren't killers they're just nice guys and uh uh tommy was carlo gambino's son and joe was a cousin and they they, they do correct time you know there's ways of doing time in prison and there's guys that can do good time guys do bad time i mean maybe you know listen i give genie benefit down for one thing uh he could have did nine 12 years him and johnny Kinnick when they sold uh, heroin and they took a 50-year bid on the chin out of stupidity because they listened to their brother john his brother john Gotti senior they wouldn't allow him to take a plea what they would have did about eight years so if this is about looking out for your your brother and looking out for your your soldiers you're supposed to tell him to take the eight but instead he was worried about his image that they're selling drugs and he made him do 50. so to me that's not a leader were the gambinos bumping heads with any other crime families when you were an enforcer you know listen uh, Every, you always have disputes between families, but it's usually, for the most part, it's worked out by sitting down and having sit-downs and working out because, you know, this life is not about killing each other. It's about making money with each other. And there's, there's good relationships between all the crews. It's not what everybody thinks. The, 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 the wars start like, the, you know, the, over the years, the wars started where guys were clipping our guys left and right because uh, we killed Paul Castellano on sanction. God, he caused that. And as our guys are getting killed one after another, we're not killing anybody back. So this is one of the reasons I said he's a soft, he was a soft leader. Uh, you, you, you're letting, we're getting uncontested killings and we're not contesting them. Uh, and there's wars during the Colombo days, wars because they split for factions within the family. And Joey Scopo Sr. was another nice guy, senior guy. He put him in there to take over one faction. He got killed. We didn't do anything about it. But Joey was best friends with Jeannie Gotti growing up together. So that's why they put him in that position. But usually it's that the money situation's cut up properly. The unions are cut up properly. And it's uh, everyday business is about any other business. It's about making money and without killing and without wars. But, you know, like anything else, guys step over the line, do the wrong thing. And in this life, you lose your life for that. Did you just need um, sort of permission for taking a made man out? 
to kill somebody? Do we yeah. need permission? Yeah, you're supposed to go from, you know, you don't, you know, listen, we all do it. I did it. You know, yeah. you, you're clipping guys, uh, Jimmy Burke and uh, his son, Frankie Burke, had a situation. He told me it was for his father from an old heroin deal, and me and him went out in Brooklyn, and we killed two guys, and I did it with him. And he wasn't with our family yet. Jimmy got life already. Frankie was a good friend of mine. He's dead. He got killed too. But uh, I went and did it on sanction. Uh, Frankie asked me to take the ride with him. I took it, and and then you know I did the work with him because he was a friend. But uh, otherwise, if I get caught doing a piece of work, I'm supposed to be killed for it. I understood that. Yeah. You said we took Paul Castellano out. Were you part of that crew? And can you describe how he was taken out? Well, uh, I wasn't part of the hit. I was a young guy, but I was privy to it. At the time, uh, you know, Senior again used his friend Angelo Ruggiero as the scapegoat because they got caught on tapes talking about selling coke. And and Senior used the excuse of uh, Angelo and he shelves him later on, but he didn't shelve him. Uh, he actually promoted him after the Paul Castellano hit. So that story's bullshit too. He used that as an excuse to go hit Paul. And at the time, Paul had a couple of cases. It wasn't a sanctioned hit from the other families. And what it causes a, a big rift, but they hit Paul in front of Sparks Steakhouse. I think Sparks on 46th Street. I just did a, a show there last year. But when they hit him, there was a meeting there and it was to discuss what was going on in the drug business and what happened with Jeannie and Johnny and these guys. And when he gets out of the car, uh, him and Tommy Bellotti, there's a setup of guys to, to kill to make sure Paul doesn't leave that scene. Uh, backup car, it was a backup car at that time, was Sammy Gravano and John Gotti. And Sammy brought his gun, but John never brought a gun to that show. So this is the typical of uh, really what goes on. And this is the typical why people hear me constantly speaking up for Sammy Gravano. And you know, so people understand, at the time when I, when I was being raised in the Gambino family, I wasn't particularly close to Sammy. I seen him once in a while, I said hello to him. And I even was chastised by Gotti Senior at one time not to get too friendly with him. I didn't understand that at the time. But I guess Senior didn't want me to get close to him because maybe eventually he wanted me to hit him, kill him if he wanted. So he didn't want me to have that feelings for him, so maybe I wouldn't do it. Or I would tip him. And you know, I wasn't schooled enough at that time. I was a young kid when I first met them. But uh, I look at Sammy as, as, you know, I've said it over and over again. If he wasn't betrayed, uh, it would have been a different era. He was betrayed completely betrayed and anybody who listens to the history and follows it uh, and forget about the United States this is a different country so maybe everybody would understand listen this guy got completely betrayed he didn't do anything wrong we were in prison with it so weren't we yeah so we had an ecstasy trafficking operation in Arizona and Sammy DeBoer was out there that was their operation and uh, Wild Man was on the chain gang one day with uh, Gerard Gravano yeah, so Sammy got nailed a couple of years before us. So Gerard was telling us, you know, all the prosecutor's tricks and all that kind of stuff. I've read his book, Underboss, as well. So, I, I, you know, I, I've, I've come to be familiar with his side of the story. Before, um, just going back to Paul briefly, though, is it true that he was in a replica of the White House, prancing around in his silk pajamas, losing touch with the foot soldiers? So that weakness was shown, kind of, I don't agree with that. No? Is that I mean, myth? listen, everybody's going to have their own opinion. I think yeah. he was, listen, Paul killed more guys as a, as a boss than any of the other guys did, more than John. So, wow. And John didn't kill anybody with his own hand either. That's, yeah. So that's bullshit if anybody knows the stories because I somebody just sent me a message again. I heard he did this. Heard, well, you heard wrong. You're hearing bullshit stories. 
when they killed uh, uh, McBratney. He was there. He didn't kill him. They didn't even do it right. They couldn't get him out of the bar. And Galliano had no choice but to shoot him in the bar. He wasn't the shooter. But, you know, listen, Paul was uh, a big, big earner. So Carlo, when Carlo handed it over, I don't think it was just because of family reasons. He understood the relationship with Genovese family. He understood the money relation and the power that money brought to the Gambino family. And these guys are businessmen. And, and, and so the, the, the idea is to make money. It's not to kill. I made a lot of mistakes because I was shooting a lot and killing a lot, but that was also my job for a lot of guys. So, you know, as an organization, you know, if you don't have to kill guys and you can make money, that's the idea. And uh, Paul, I believe, was just a, he was a strong leader. You know, guys will make the excuse he was greedy, he was taking money. Well, you know, 99% of these guys are sheep. There's 1%, I've said it over and over again, of guys like me making money and, and killing. And you got some guys that just make money and then the other guys that just kill. But uh, you shouldn't be straightening out all these guys because they're somebody's son. They've never seen a fucking day on the street. If he's he's killing, no though, and not making money, what's the sense in that? Well, and and that's the problem because you got 98% of these guys are deadbeats. They, they ain't able to earn. They just yeah. follow you that makes money or follows me that's killing guys and making money. And so, you've got you know, an expensive pay. Yeah, and, and, and so they're, they're crying about you know, Paul or somebody, but go out and earn, you know? Exactly, yeah. So when you got guys like, you know, uh, you know, Gerard, I don't know him personally and meet him personally. I talked to him on the phone plenty of times. So people know who he is, Gerard's Sammy's son. And, but you know, he's also, you know, a gentleman. He's, he's, he's a quiet guy. He's low sp spoken. He's low key. And the father raised him right actually. And, you know, and, and this is the point. A lot of these guys raised their sons, uh, an example, Patty Catalano was a heroin mover and his son opened his big mouth to me one day. He thought I gave a fuck who his father was. I tied him up. I put him on lighter fluid all over and I beat him up and I was going to put him on fire. I mean, no one gives a fuck who your father is. You know, yeah. you're going to respect somebody if you're a gentleman and if he's a tough guy. And uh, if you're a tough guy and not being a gentleman, somebody eventually is going to kill you too. So with Paul gone, the different factions of the Gambinos scramble for the leadership. Uh, no, I wasn't scrambled. It was, you know, it was a coup <laughs> and, uh, Gotti had it arranged and he, he, uh, awarded himself the, the position. But the problem is he wasn't capable to run in that position. He wasn't an earner. You know, I just recently did a show and the guy asked me, he did, you know, it was Gotti, would you tell me you're a better earner than Gotti? And I should have answered that a little different. I'm going to say, Gotti fucker couldn't answer, he couldn't earn two cents. Yeah, I wasn't 10 times better earner than him, but. His guys were earners. There's a difference. His guys were bringing in all kinds of money from heroin, construction. He couldn't. He never made a penny from anything. Sammy made the construction money. Guys like Johnny Koenig made the heroin money. Guys like Mark Ryder. But John himself, you know, he, he wasn't capable. He was capable of running a gang. He wasn't capable of running a mob. And it was a big mistake, him coming into position. So we've got to actually never killed anyone. What... What gives him the right to take that position? Because he had killers around him. He had serious guys around him. Guys like Johnny Knigg was a killer. Tony Roach was a killer. Willie Boy Johnson, although he was doing what John Gotti Jr. was doing, meeting the government queen of the day, informant, was a tough guy killer. You know, he had guys that were killers, yeah. uh, no doubt. And that's what made him strong because he aligned himself around some serious shooters and earnest. But him particularly, if you follow the history of him when he was younger, he couldn't even hijack a truck right. So he, <laughs> and that's the truth about the guy, but I give him credit for other things. You know, the guy maneuvered people. 
He did yeah. do that. He put himself in a position. He, you know, he knew when to take opportunities. He took it. He surrounded himself with guys like Sammy Gravano and Frankie DeChico. You know, it, but when people see the history of this and they don't understand the mob, when they kill Paul Castellano, there's nobody to contest it. There's Peter, there's Peter Castellano who's not a tough guy. He shows up two weeks later to play cards at, the, at our club because he's not a tough guy. The older guy is Joe Gallo. He's an old man. You know, Tommy Gambino doesn't want no part of that. He's a gentleman. He's a, you know, he's a multimillionaire himself. He's not a gangster, a hardcore guy like that. He's just a nice guy. So who's going to contest this murder? He's got Frankie Loke in the Bronx on his side. He's got Frankie DeChico. So God, he does make some right moves. He takes, he aligns himself with all the young guys that are tough and the guys that have the power like Frankie DeChico and Sammy Gravano in Brooklyn and Staten Island and Frankie in the Bronx. Nobody contested within our family. The problem he was going to have is Vic Amuso with the Lucchese family and Gas Pipe and the Chin with the West Side. And these guys were going to hit Gotti, no doubt. If he doesn't go to jail, he's going to end up dead. It's just a matter of time. And they, you know, they blow up a car and he's lucky he isn't in the car. It was the wrong guy who was in the car. <coughs> Excuse me, was in the car. And guys are getting caught on tape. Bobby Manning gets caught on tape trying to hit Gotti and Gotti's going to get hit. The FBI goes to his house once or twice and once. And we got on tape. We heard you're going to get hit. Gotti acts like he's not worried about it, but he was very worried about it. And uh, it was only a matter of time before they, you know, they hit him. And because of the way he carried the media around him, it was so hard to get near him. And I think that's one of the things he purposely did. He understood the media around him is almost like having law enforcement around him, which law enforcement did come around him because of the way he behaved. This is blanket of protection, isn't it? Yeah. And, you know, so, the, the, you know, the media is for guys that are not active, not for an active boss. Yeah. And so he destroyed what Cosa Nostra was. You know, when you talk about Andy Ruggiano, you're talking about guys who don't even know who he is, right? You guys don't know who he is. Nobody knows who he is, but he was one of the most powerful bosses around our area. And God, he just stepped into his position because Andy went to jail. Later on, he comes home, he gets sick, he dies right away. But these are the guys that, you know, if you're going to make movies about or do shows about, it's got to be about somebody like him. Guys like Robert, you know, Angles, people don't know who he is. He's a guy that got away from the life and he preaches now. And But these are tough guys from the street that were quiet. And uh, he never became a made guy, became an associate, but he was known, you know, really known on the street. So you get guys like him and you, you look back and you say, if you're going to follow this life, this life's about being quiet, making money, being a gentleman, just what you said earlier, and uh, chudge along a little bit, low key, and you can last. Yeah. When you, when you go out uh, like Gotti did, of course you're not going to last. You last four years. The public, you know, looks at them because the media built something up that's really not true. That doesn't exist. But it's the, it's probably the single worst thing that happened to the Gambino family ever. That uh, Paul Castellano getting killed.